Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest lecture. And this is going to be on 3D imaging, pearls, pitfalls, and opportunities. And 3D imaging is one of my favorite topics, and I realized I had not spoken about this for a while. So I thought I would share with you some of the thoughts of where things are, where things are going, and where a lot of the opportunities uh, arise. Now, if you go back almost three decades, we go back to the Pixar days and we talk about the changes in imaging. As computers were changing, as computers were getting faster, we were also developing better software. Pixar, really Lucasfilms, Bob Drebin, Lauren Carpenter, uh, Pat Hanrahan developed what was called volumetric rendering technique, which was a new approach to three-dimensional imaging. At that point, surface rendering was all that was available. Volumetric rendering differed from surface rendering in that all the information from the CT scans was preserved. Not just boundaries, object thickness, and internal contours were able to be seen. And because of the quality of the images, we were able to suggest and work and Note a few years later that 3D imaging was becoming an important tool for both diagnostic and therapeutic display of digital information. Now, I can't say that we've always been on the money in terms of predicting things. Um, I did not predict Kansas City would win the World Series this year, which they did last night. And I could not predict exactly when 3D imaging would be mainstream. Here's an article from 25 years ago. As radiology enters the 90s, we predict that one of the major achievements of this decade will be the widespread diffusion of the technology of computed image processing into the medical community. Um, I wasn't exactly correct there in terms of timing, nor was I correct five years later Radiologists must embrace this paradigm shift from axial to primary 3D visualization in order to efficiently and comprehensively review large data sets and improve patient care. We predict that within a few years, 3D CT will no longer be a specialized study done on a few select patients, but part of standard review of routine cases. Now, I will say the part that was correct was that 3D is valuable. It's amazing a large data set in 2006 is a small data set in 2016, but nevertheless, we recognize that the technology has not gotten to the point where it's at everyone's desktop and it's used on every case. When you look at what people are doing, and if I ask for a show of hands now, how many people are only looking at axial imaging, that would be more than 50% of the people. Occasionally, people will look at coronal and sagittal in difficult cases, but rarely are people looking at 3D imaging. It's very important to realize that the process of how we look at information has been stagnant because the companies making the workstations have been stagnant. Things have not changed in 20 years. Really, you have to think about how we should be doing things. The idea of Derek Nye and David Heath about interactive multiplanar and 3D rendering, which was described more than two decades ago, is the way things need to be done, but it's not the way things are done these days. We go back to the important concept we've always said, particularly these days, when you have thousands of slices, you can't even look at all the axial imaging. And even if you could, you'd be limited because we know that volume imaging requires volume visualization. 
and it's nothing unique to radiology. It's the idea of scientific visualization described 20 plus years ago, allowing a deeper understanding of data under investigation and provide new insights relying on the human's ability to visualize. Gershon described that visualization was the process of transforming information into a visual form, enabling users to observe the information, and by doing that, they were able to perceive features which were hidden in the data, but nevertheless critical for data exploration and analysis. And I always like to show this case, so I'll show it again, where I point to this little dot to the left of the SMA, and they ask you what the dot is, and it's really impossible to figure out, but when I show you the 3D, you recognize it's the left adrenal vein, which is a critical boundary in patients who are potential renal donors. It's easy to see in 3D. You can see it 99% of the time. It's only two millimeters, but if you look at the axial images, it's impossible to recognize. So things in the volume are much easier to appreciate. There's no doubt about that. We also will show a case like this and ask the question, in this patient, axial imaging, yes, I see the bowel wall thickening, I see the prominence of the mesentery, and this patient has Crohn's disease, and with the prominent mesentery, it's active. If I simply take that into coronal, you're better able to appreciate the length of involvement, you're better able to appreciate the areas of stenosis, the wall thickening, and the prominent vasculature, but if I take that into MIP, you really appreciate the vasa recta, which means the patient has active disease. You can't really see the bowel wall in this case because on MIP it's a projection technique. You don't really see the wall thickening, but you have a beautiful display of the bowel wall interface with the vasculature. And in the volume, you really appreciate the lesion with volume rendering because I see the vasculature. I also see the wall thickening. I also see the strictures. I indeed see everything. You talk about the ability to visualize, and this case is the best example. There's no additional radiation dose. It's simply processing thousands of slices into a few select images that can convey far more information. Or in this example, where you see a very subtle finding, which is a vascular lesion, perhaps it's in the ampulla, perhaps it's in the duodenum, perhaps it's pancreas, perhaps it's between the two of them, and when you look at the 3D imaging, you can see the vasculature of the lesion, and you recognize that what you're dealing with is a primary duodenal lesion, which was a GIST tumor. Or in this case, in a patient with chest pain and prior cardiac surgery, you see the hemopericardium, you see the large pseudoaneurysm, you can try to describe it to the referring uh, thoracic surgeon, but it's much easier on the 3D where you see the pseudoaneurysm, you see the suture line, and it arises near the suture line, you see the orientation of the section of the ascending aorta, and you see the patient's right coronary artery. There's no doubt that we are firm believers in 3D imaging. We do at least 50 or 60 cases every day. It's something our clinicians expect from us. It's something that really is a significant part of their practice. Here's an article by Pam Johnson. By supplementing traditional axial interpretation with 3D rendering of the volume, the greatest amount of information is extracted and that post-processing is no longer an option, but a true requirement in the 64-row era, and think about it in the dual-source era. If I look back at where things have gone, it's interesting. 
When I first started CT, we did some 3D on the computers of the scanner. Those were DEC digital equipment, PDP-11s. It took forever and the images were crappy. Uh, the number of slices we had, four, you know, 40 to 60 slices, four millimeters thick perhaps would be a thin section. We then did all our work with Pixar and then we moved to the next platform and Sun Workstations with Spark 2 and then to Silicon Graphics which was really the big gorilla in the late 80s and early 90s and then we went to Silicon Graphics as they went to cheaper workstations with specialized boards and then as specialty boards became available rather than expensive workstations we're able to move there and then with NVIDIA leading the way using NVIDIA boards and now with NVIDIA boards running the processing for iPads you can see the cost has gone from hundreds of thousands of dollars to thousands of dollars the speed has gone from in the Pixar original days 24 hours to process a total of 60 slices to where we can look at thousands of slices in under a second and when you look at the images if you're really good in 82 you can recognize those are the hips that are deformed and the pelvis and then the first original Pixar image showing fat muscle and bone but look at the quality this rotated around but still wasn't great quality but again this volume rendering provided the opportunity to be able to rethink how we could do 3D and so in a short period of time the 3D images were of this quality where you can see muscle and you can see bone and you can see the orientation and you would spin the images so you had the advantage of motion and then we did uh, a large scan of a cadaver which took about seven hours to scan and several days to process but there you have the entire body pretty good quality but remember we can do that today scan the patient in probably under 30 seconds and reconstruct in a matter of seconds so things have indeed changed and if you look at how much things have changed these images with 3d of a focal nodular hyperplasia are done if you look carefully on an ipad as are these runoff studies so again the process has gone from expensive to cheap the quality and capabilities have never been stronger yet how do we do 3d imaging and why well we talk about rendering techniques it's the most important technical determinant of 3d image quality in most cases assuming you have a good data set which is much easier these days and the rendering technique is really the computer algorithm that transforms the axial slices into the post-process or 3d imaging now the first thing that many people do and we always do multiplanar some people only do multiplanar is to reformat the images into different planes and typically you do coronal and sagittal routinely though oblique and in select instances curved planar as in with coronaries becomes very important NPR quality depends on the initial data set both slice thickness and into scan spacing and we use it and multiplanar is very important but let's focus on the rendering we talk about two rendering techniques binary classification or surface-based and volume-based techniques and again our focus has always been on volume rendering so with volume rendering you could look at the feet and you could use color or do grayscale and look at the detail of the tendons and a little bit of the bone and you could change the rendering and get a really good look at the vessels in the skin or make the skin even more opaque 
and then make it more transparent for looking at attendance. The thing that volume rendering provides, being a percentage classification technique, is that we could look at mus multiple tissue types. I showed you skin, I showed you tendons, I showed you muscle, I showed you bone. And depending how we set the parameters, we can show different structures. And we can interactively do that so we're able to really optimize data visualization. With volume rendering, each pixel is accurately represented. With volume rendering, we talk about a probabilistic classification with a trapezoid approximation, and that every tissue type is able to be visualized. And you can do this on fast computers in real time. Every tissue type is assigned a color and transparency, and each voxel is assigned a color and transparency by taking the weighted sum of the percentage of each tissue within that voxel. We then project this with simulated rays of light through the volume containing the classified and colored voxels, which is projected on the computer screen, which is what we see. Now, one of the challenges, of course, with volume rendering is the ability to accurately depict the data with the right color. It's an interactive process, and so it's vulnerable to inter-observer variability, and also is in some part dependent on you mastering the software. Now, it's become a lot easier to master a lot of the software, but again, there's variability. So if I show you this case, and I say uh, axial imaging, looking at the coronary arteries, but look at the coronaries in that colored image. You can see the left main coronary artery is coming off the right cusp, as is the right coronary. And then one of the things, of course, I can do is create motion. And as I rotate the image and I change the opacification, I can bring more or less of the cardiac chambers, more or less of the heart into view. And then when I look at this again, with motion, the ability to change the volume parameters. And here we're seeing 4D where the heart is actually moving is very nicely seen in this set of images. This study also shows you the advantage of color perhaps over looking at uh, grayscale. You can see the image on the right is actually a MIP, maximum intensity projection. And it does, when shown correctly, define both the right and left coronary arteries. But again, you can see some of the three-dimensional aspects are lost on MIP because it's a projection technique. And so MIP is considered a technique that falls between a thresholding technique and volume rendering. It evaluates each voxel along a line from the viewer's eye through the volume of data and selects the maximum voxel value which is displayed. There are different implementations of MIP imaging but, you know, the variability between vendors is less because the technique is less complicated. There are some pitfalls, but I think you can be aware of these. A critical thing with MIP is the, the size of the slab you're looking at. So if I show you the right coronary artery, which is very nicely seen, you can see that the thickness of the slab to show the right coronary in its entirety is very dependent on how you select parameters. So if I look at one millimeter thick, I see part of the coronary, and five, a little bit more, and 10, a little bit more, and 20, a bit more, but it's not till I get to 30 that I can see the coronary artery in its entirety. And then I'm also able to lay that coronary out with a curved display. Again, the interactivity becomes important, but also the ability to understand the size of slabs, that if you have a thicker slab, you bring information that's outside perhaps the area of interest and you can create all sorts of artifacts.
Now, when we look at the information, one of the things we recognize, of course, is that we tend to use all of the tools. So if I look at this case with a suspected liver mass, and you scroll through the axial imaging, you can see a vascular lesion left lobe of liver that's the same brightness as the IVC. It's not as bright as the aorta, and it has some feeding vessels going into the center of the lesion, and there is a central scar in the lesion. And as you look at the lesion, it's very nicely shown as well-defined with the central scar. Now, if you look at the coronal perspective of that lesion, again, very nicely showing you the vascularity, showing you the vessels going into the center of the lesion, showing you the central scar. And so the axials, coronals, I have a lot of information about how things should look. And then I take that, and now I show it with MIP, a projection technique, which shows you the left hepatic artery branches going directly into the center of the lesion. You can see the lesion very nicely. So a good example of with the MIP supplementing the axial imaging. Now when you look at MIP, one of the things that works well is this projection, but you need to be very careful because with MIP, if I show you this case of a potential renal donor and I ask the question how many renal arteries are there, whether it's volume rendering or MIP, the answer is two. Same patient, if I ask you the question, where's the renal vein? Is it pre-aortic or retroaortic? On the volume rendering, it's pre-aortic in classic location, and on the MIP, is retroaortic. Which one of these two is correct? Another example, another patient, same thing. Volume rendering, the uh, renal vein is in front of the aorta. The MIP, it's behind the aorta. Well, this is the issue with MIP. With MIP, the brightest voxels always appear to be in front, even if they are in truth, in fact, behind other structures. With MIP, the brightest voxels always obscure all other structures behind or in front of them. So you can see from this case, it'll always look like the vein is retroaortic unless you did a delayed phase image where the vein would be denser than the aorta. As long as the aorta is brighter, it's going to show the vein to be retroaortic. So again, you want to be careful when you're speaking to a surgeon with MIP imaging. You want to look at the volume rendering. You want to look at the axial original data set. Another last thing to comment on is the importance of color. I've showed you some examples now with grayscale and some with color. Color works very nicely. Here's a patient with an ulceration in the descending thoracic aorta, and we take it from the axial and uh, sagittal view into the 3D, and you can see very nicely in the 3D with color, you can see the processing a whole lot better. So with that, why don't we stop at this point and uh, let's get a cup of coffee and let's start up again looking at some of the post-processing tools that we now have available. Thank you very much.